Hi there, this is Kevin, editor of the Skylight Books author reading series. Due to some technical difficulties, the last 10 minutes of the Dave Tompkins' reading was not recorded. Sorry for any inconvenience, and please enjoy the first hour of it. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook. If you would like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Um, to introduce our event, uh, we're very happy to have uh, Peter Relic here, who, is, uh, who was former editor at Vibe. Peter? Howdy, y'all. I think this is the only book reading you'll ever come to where you'll hear, please turn off your cell phones, but if you brought a vocoder, you're welcome to leave it on. Um, I'm going to tell really three really quick anecdotes, and you're going to wonder, why is he saying these things that have nothing to do with this book reading we're here for? But if you'll be patient, I think it's going to help set up what's to follow. So it's, this first one happened in 1996. I was living here in Los Angeles, and one day my phone rang. I picked it up. It was a stranger. He introduced himself as Dave and uh, asked me if I had uh, graduated high school in Charlotte, North Carolina. I said, yes, I had. And then he asked me if I had ever worked scrubbing golf carts at a country club called Carmel with a kid named Stuart. And I said, why, yes, I had. And he said, he, they said okay, you're the guy I want to talk to, because I, I also heard you like rap music. And uh, this was also happened to be true. Um, now, 1996 doesn't seem like that long ago, but it was an era when you actually would do something like call up a complete stranger under the auspices of having a friend who once washed golf carts with your friend on the chance that maybe the guy would be willing to talk about rap records with you. Which Dave began to do. And he started talking about crazy rap records, none of which I had ever heard of, even though I thought I knew about rap records, except for Houdini's Haunted House of Rock. <laughs> yeah, so that's a foundation of many a, a lasting friendship, as this man obviously knows. So, uh, so, so we hung up the phone. Uh, Dave gave me his number. We hung up the phone, and uh, I happened to pick up an issue of Herb magazine that was on the, my bedroom floor, and I opened it to an article about Master Ace, and I started reading it. And uh, it was the kind of writing you really don't read in magazines, and definitely not in hip-hop magazines. Uh, it was intelligent, uh, it was funny, uh, it was uh, zany, it was, uh, he was using all kinds of uh, uh, figures of speech uh, of a sort of an extremely poetic nature that uh, I had never thought of before and certainly never read in a rap magazine. And then I read a sentence that I'll never forget where the writer said, Master Ace, correlates 
tens, nouns, and text with thens, nows, and next. And at that point, I threw the magazine on the floor because I had glanced at the byline and seen it was this guy, Dave Tompkins, who had just called me. So I quickly called him up on the phone, and he didn't answer. His roommate answered, and his roommate sounded pretty out of it. It sounded like he was um, like eating biscuit dough out of a tube or something like that. But anyway, I left my name and number, and it only took a year for Dave to get back to me, at which point one night he appeared at the bottom of my stairs wearing a backpack stuffed full of cassettes. And as I stared at Dave and he sort of waved up at me from the bottom of my stairwell, his backpack exploded. So with the exploding backpack thing in place, our friendship con continued to gather, gain, gather momentum. But uh, shortly afterwards, I got to move to New York and I became an editor at Vibe Magazine, which was great fun. You see Quincy Jones walking around in a silk bathrobe in the editorial office is a real privilege. And uh, I have the emotional scars to prove it to the gentleman in the back. And uh, um, Dave started to call me on the phone. And at this point, it was 1999 now. Uh, we, Dave called up. We would talk about Black Street. Uh, I remember that Outcast had just come out with Synthesizer and the Beastie Boys at Intergalactic and Dave said to me on the phone, it's that same voice, it's that vocoder, the one from Houdini's Haunted House of Rock, Pete, it's back to haunt us forever. And I said, okay, okay, calm down, Dave. Why don't you write a story about the vocoder for Vibe? So Dave wrote a really nice, uh, I still don't have a word to describe Dave's writing. That's, that's, that's for everyone here to do. Uh, piece about the vocoder, only a half page long. And uh, here we are 11 years later, Dave's written a book about it. Um, and that might sound glib, but I think anyone who cares to uh, pick up the book, and I definitely encourage you all to do so, will see that uh, 11 years of research and thought and the sort of uh, attention uh, to detail, uh, bringing history out of the shadows, uh, and I think the title of the book says that it's called How to Recognize Speech, the, the vocoder from World War II to hip hop, the machine speaks. And uh, I would definitely encourage you all to uh, hold on to your seats and put your hands together for Dave Tompkins. Thanks, thanks Pete. Um, I think is the, I'm sorry, is the projector on? I should also say that one of, the, <clears throat> one of the greatest stories that never made it to Vibe was regarded a, uh, an L.A. song <clears throat> that a producer named Omid did. It's called Farmer's Market of the Beasts. And, um, <clears throat> and this is Vibe magazine, and we're talking, and Pete and I had this idea where we want to take <clears throat> these different rappers from the song The Farmer's Market of the Beast and go to Alamogordo, New Mexico, to the gravesite of Ham the Space Chump and channel his spirit through these four or five rappers who rhymed in the uh, voices of animals, there was a goat, there was a lion, and there was a uh, space chimp with a tinfoil hat that was a, a walrus, and uh, it was some sort of post-good post life, post-Project Blow 
I saw from the late 90s, and um, that was Pete and I's dream, was to uh, end up on the, uh, the grave site of Ham, the space chimp, and I'll uh, get that in Vibe magazine. Never happened, but uh, <laughs> I figured that was important. Um, you're looking at Egyptian Lover. <laughs> He's in Australia right now, most likely walking Planet Rock backwards with his hand. Um, it sounds like a brand new Kraftwerk song. Uh, this is on the, uh, the wall of the La Rutan Barbershop in South Central, um, sort of a de facto home to early L.A. Electro in the uh, early 80s, run by good Fred Ellis, the inventor of the Jerry Curl. <clears throat> this is my book title. Um, it's actually a spectral diagram, spectral visible speech diagram that Wendy Carlos customized for the book. Um, of these, these spectral speech bands, which measure formant energy of human speech. And if, you were to, if this picture were to speak to you, it would sound like this. How to recognize speech. Or that. How to recognize speech. So I wanted this thing on my book cover, and the publishers, no, no, you need a vocoder on the cover. Nobody knows what the whole vocoder, you know, you can't do this. But I had this other idea. I don't know if you remember um, Neil Young on the beach. You seen the album cover? He's on the beach. There's an umbrella. I wanted to have a vocoder under a beach umbrella, Coney Island, some awfully gray day, and have the vocoder wearing a plastic nose shield, and have a balloon with Stalin's face on it coming up out of the ocean, kind of like this, this movie, uh, Burnt by the Sun. I don't know if you all have seen that. It has this amazing scene with the balloon rising up out of the wheat fields, and Stalin's face is on it. And some miniature Cylons in the sand. And this is, you know, I was like, man, this is some high concept shit, right? And, and that's when I got fired from the book cover committee. No more of that. We did that ourselves. Um, you were looking at Ralph Miller. Um, if Ralph Miller were here, he'd be looking at you. He's still alive. He's 103 years old. I first met him when he was 96 on the morning after shock and awe. Ralph Miller was an early vocoder engineer at Bell Labs. Um, he also worked on the top secret World War II cryptology project called Sig Sally, i.e. Project X. Um, kind of an unoriginal name for such a mysterious, super secret thing. Same cryptology, cryptography classification as the Manhattan Project. And this is Ralph um, doing a test, an early like speech format test. And a lot of people, Bell Labs has this reputation of being some stiff guys who just kind of hung out and like blew their nose in the vocoder and created this top secret war machine. But they also did a commercial for Silly Willy Toothpaste. This is the Silly Willy Hour, ladies and gentlemen, comes to you by courtesy of the Silly Willy Toothpaste Company. Silly Willy is good for you. It's also good for polishing your car or silverware. Go right down to your corner drugstore and get a tooth of Silly Willy tonight. This program is on the air every night at this same hour. Good night, ladies and gentlemen. Good night. We'll be selling tubes of Silly Willy Toothpaste outside the store after the reading. Um, but Ralph was amazing. Uh, he was the first person to tell me that they were using two turntables um, in the basement of the Pentagon and in Churchill's uh, bunker during World War II. But um, I wanted to intersperse the slideshow with some, some brief excerpts from the book, and I wanted to read the part about Homer Dudley presenting the vocoder to MGM Studios just before World War II, and this is in 1939. So it begins with Homer Dudley, the vocoder's inventor, going to MGM, and it ends with Ray Bradbury, 
crying in front of the fireworks display, July 4th, 1939. <clears throat> when Bradbury went to the World's Fair, he, he was really excited to call, they had this, this free long distance exhibit where you could call anywhere in the continental United States for free, but the only catch was everyone could listen. So whoever was at the World's Fair could hear Bradbury uh, talking to his parents and telling him he missed them. So I just wanted to give you some context for this because there might be a leap on there. In the summer of 1939, Homer Dudley visited MGM Studios in Hollywood, offering the vocoder as, quote, a scientific aid to the movie stars, claiming his invention could revive the silent stars who had been excommunicated by the advent of talkies. Actors could essentially swap larynges, enunciating the pitch provided by a, quote, surrogate throat. With its overdubbing potential, the vocoder could airbrush defective voices and create the illusion that actors could sing. Gee whizzing in the Los Angeles Times, Philip Schur claimed the vocoder could transform any voice into, quote, the voice true. A squeak into an oratorio, a bumpkin into a Barrymore, a hash slinger into Lily Ponds. At the Hollywood demonstration, Homer Dudley sang, how dry I am, through the vocoder, multiplexing his voice, and then he became an airplane taking a nosedive. Dudley then fluttered the pitch controls, triggering a domestic squabble with himself, spanning three generations. Father scolds daughter. Never mind the flip talk, young lady. Daughter back talks. My teacher's screwy, daddy. Grandpa Gizzard warbles in, and mother takes a hit of scotch. Said the LA Times, Anything so wondrous, so stupendous, and so complicated, and so confusing, must find a place in movie making. Hollywood would have to wait. All things wondrous, stupendous, complicated, and confusing must report to the Army first. Though the World's Fair can make claims on the future, the, the military officially had dibs on tomorrow. Long before the vocoder played the voice of a missile-happy Cold War supercomputer in Colossus the Forbin Project, it held an underground desk job, scrambling the phone calls of the Army's triple chin brass. Patriotics to f patriotic orders to fill, eggs to scramble, things to come, things to do. Writing in the New Yorker, Martian monger H.G. Wells predicted that the World's Fair would introduce teleconferencing, a snooze button of a prophecy, but less dooming than the atomic conflict he foresaw in his 1914 book, world set free. In the same book, Wells defined funk as militarism. In 1939, funk was transmitters. In 1939, funk was German code breakers and headphones. In 1939, funk was fear. Ray Bradbury, the loud blonde dreamer, was terrified. Nothing could distract him from the prospect of the sky above whistling straight to hell. Those at the fair who eavesdropped on Ray Bradbury's free call to Los Angeles probably just admired the clarity, marveling at voices shooting across time zones. Perhaps they mistook his modulated quaver for homesickness, not the fear he would never again see his parents. I love you, I miss you, I'm broke. That night, July 4th, standing in the glow of the fireworks, the world's, blindest the world's blindest Stegosaurus fan saw the sky on fire and cried. 
so <coughs> this is Project X. Um, and it was commissioned during War II, Bell Labs was commissioned by the NDRC, and there are 12 of these terminals scattered across the globe as the war proceeded. There's one in the basement of a wine cellar in Algiers, and there is one, as I mentioned, in the Pentagon. There was one in an ocean lighter in Tokyo Bay. So basically, you had a two-turntable vocoder robot system in the hold of a ship in Tokyo Bay. The records did not scratch. The needles were indexed from the center, playing in reverse, kind of backwards masking. But if you were a German codebreaker and you intercepted these signals, you would not hear human speech, but you'd hear a strange buzzing sound coming from the ether. And kind of just shrill like and then when I call up these old Bell Labs engineers I go what does it sound like is oh it sounded like the Green Hornet so they nicknamed the system the Green Hornet for those operators ferrying these top secret calls across the globe during World War II and to me when I hear a it's kind of like I mean it's all James Brown right <laughs> on a mode so I was freaking out. So again, the morning was shocking all, and uh, here's uh, here's um, Ralph Miller telling me about the two turntable system and asking me why on earth am I here? And I show him a picture of Michael Johnson in an orange spacesuit or wearing a powder wig, and he just shakes his head and goes, oh, "I guess they're using it for entertainment these days." This is the uh, this terminal. Each terminal has has a special code name. This one is code name Sample. Their words, not mine. Hey man, I just wrote this shit. <laughs> they, they they did it. They kind of did it for me though. Um, these are two these two single core officers monitoring the two turntables. The records were pressed up in utter secrecy by the Musac Corporation, unbeknownst to most people at the Musac Corporation. So you had elevator in one side of the building, and then the other side of the building you had. But if you played these records, it sounded like randomized thermal noise, this sort of rush of thermal noise, which had to be encoded with the signal. The records were the most classified aspect of the World War II system, more classified than the vocoder, which kind of freaked me out because I collect records and stuff. They're the rarest records on earth, right? And it's true, they were. They were immediately after being played, the records were fed to the record destruction machine. Or, and this is from the Six Alley uh, guide playbook, basically, where they say they would scratch all over the records with a screwdriver. Or they'd take a flamethrower to them. Um, this is one of the first electrolarynxes. Looks like a prototype to the talk box. That's RR Wright's of Bell Labs. The electrolarynx <clears throat> was invented to help, help treat people with speech pathologies or throat cancer or paralyzed vocal cords. And I wanted to play a, a clip of a German electrolarynx, which was manufactured in the late 40s. But, you know, when I think of a guy with a tube in his mouth, Roger Troutman usually comes to mind. And this is Roger Troutman performing Computer Love at a lowrider show in Fresno. Um, I wanted to play an example of Roger Troutman using the talk box, and this is a clip from an interview on Eazy-E's Ruthless Radio Show from 1994. And this is, this is Roger responding to Eazy's question of, what would it sound like if Roger produced a song for Eazy? And it went something like this. 
Well, you know, uh, like if I did something with you, it would have to be, you know, something dirty and street and, you know, uh, like something like maybe, uh, well, let's go. We, we customize this for LA. I've been really waiting to come out here for a while. <laughs> Pretty excited. Uh, anyway, yeah, there's Roger. And, but you can't mention this guy with a tube in his mouth without, well, here you have an early uh, proto-talk box from, the 19, from 1941, complete with saliva traps and push-button volume control. But I wanted to get to Dr. Werner Meyer Epler, a huge influence on craft work, and a, uh, he used to publish articles like Observations During the Retarded Feedback of the Language. Um, Meyer Epler made speeches on the vocoder in the uh, late 1940s and would end up encouraging the WDR, West German Radio, to purchase its first vocoder. And so there's a show called A Musical Night, kind of a cheery, chirpy name, and you would hear things like this in the early evening. It's 19, oh gosh. I mean, nothing makes me happier than a good ass vocoder drone. People always ask, like, what's your favorite vocoder song? And I was like, man, it's like that. Um, but uh, without Meyer Epler, there would be no craft work. He, he was a huge influence on Florian, and especially Florian's uh, pursuits as being a self-proclaimed artificial voice collector. But uh, from Dr. Meyer Epler, we get to John F. Kennedy during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, Kennedy hated the vocoder. He used it during the Cuban Missile Crisis on the top secret phone line when communicating with Harold Macmillan and with uh, Lars Norstad in Paris. Um, Kennedy was on, on steroids and painkillers and antibiotics at the time, and the vocoder system they used at that point, called the KY9, which is also developed by Bell Labs, had a push-to-talk function, which is the kind of thing that's great for buzzing in your buddies or UPS, but in matters of world security, the silence on the other end of the line could be mistaken for tacit consent. But somehow the system worked, so uh, the vocoder did play a significant role during the Cuban Missile Crisis, despite um, the president's obvious frustrations with it. There are no sound clips of that, unfortunately. Hey, but we got Space Patrol. Wait, this may be the very first vocoder record on vinyl, despite what Bell Labs may have had back in the day. They won't let me get to them. But this is for a German science fiction serial called Space Patrol. The composer is Peter Thomas. Um, and this came out and it was, it was aired in 1966. And they use it for your standard uh, Cold War countdown. Numbers. Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. It kind of turned into something else, right? Um, 
This will be the 1964 World's Fair vocoder demonstration. Um, Wendy, then Walter Carlos, uh, saw this and heard it and absolutely freaked out. She went six or seven times and and had her voice turned upside down all around through this machine. And this was a the 1964 World's Fair was a pivotal moment for her in in collaborating with Robert Moog and ultimately doing the soundtrack for Clockwork Orange, in which she used her vocoder interpretation. And ex I guess exploration of um, Beethoven's Ninth, but uh, <clears throat> the World's Fair also was crawling with NSA operatives and people looking for a new secret coding system. So a lot of a lot of these kind of like, hey, play with the voice gadgets, ended up back in Maryland um, for uh, cryptanalysts. And they're still, you can find them still piled up in scrapyards. I was told by one Vietnam vocoder engineer that there's a place in Upper Marlboro where they find a lot of these machines and they revive them and then uh, kick them back into gear and the robot is still alive. This is the HY2 vocoder. Um, <laughs> there's one of these babies on eBay right now. <laughs> like $800. Uh, this was the main vocoder user in Vietnam. It's the first digital incarnation of the, of the device. It was hooked into a massive global system called AutoCivocom. Um, in doing my research, I was looking for a connection, strong musical connection between what was going on in Vietnam in the 70s and, of course, the evolution of synthesizers and vocoders at the time. And the closest I could get was Rick Davis from Cybertron, um, who had served in Vietnam and was deployed in Quang Tri in 1968. Cybertron, if you're not familiar, recorded a song called Clear, this kind of proto-electro song that came out in 1982 that really freaked me out in seventh grade. But I wanted to play, uh, in, in honor of Rick Davis, uh, I wanted to play a song he did with the vocoder called El Salvador. When I asked Rick what the lyrics were, because as usual, the vocoder is no friend to intelligibility, he said, I don't want to kill you, but I have to. But Rick was awesome. When I first I spoke with him after I turned in the, uh, the first draft, and my brain was blown. I spent all this time interviewing Romelzi, and, and I had to go see a masseuse who beat the crap out of my neck, because um, I thought it would be a great idea to turn in my book on my 40th birthday, and it's a horrible idea, it turns out. But I was on the phone with Rick Davis, and um, I was ready to talk some Cybertron, because nobody had spoken with him before about this. Usually it's through Juan Atkins as a main voice of Cybertron. And, and Rick and I talked about Forrest J. Ackerman, famous monsters of film land, and basically all these horror films that we both grew up watching. So then one hour later, I was like, oh, right, Vietnam. Um, but Rick Davis went to go see uh, Suspiria. Hello? Oh, <laughs> he went to go see Suspiria when, when he returned to the States and saw it in quadraphonic sound. And that was a huge, huge moment for him and encouraged him to, to purchase his first ARP Odyssey synthesizer. This would be the Votrax. Um, the Votrax was used by Kraftwerk on a song called Uranium. It was manufactured by a car, a car auto parts company called the Federal Screwworks, based out of Troy, Michigan. For some reason, Federal Screwworks decided to get into vocal interface, and they developed these text-to-speech devices called the Votrax. And it's kind of like a giant phonetic keyboard, which is perfect for Florian Schneider, the uh, collector of artificial voices. And it sounds something like this. Oh. 
<laughs> it's my favorite Kraftwerk song, which everybody's like, what? Um, but yeah, the vote tracks, ladies and gentlemen, from the Federal Screw Works of Troy, Michigan. Dr. Fritz Sennheiser. Fritz Sennheiser was responsible for introducing the vocoder to Los Angeles. At an AES Audio Engineering Society meeting, he brought this machine packed in a microwave-sized crate and presented it to Kai Krauss, who had been working with Tangerine Dream. It was a big moment because Fritz Sennheiser said, uh, see what you can do with this thing. Well, this thing Fritz Sennheiser had been developing during World War II in a top secret laboratory in Bavaria where German intelligence had been working on their own vocoder system. It was never deployed, but some of this stuff was declassified uh, <laughs> after my third draft of the book <laughs> came in. And I was pretty excited to learn because during the process of writing this thing, I was like, man, I know they had one. I know they had one, but there was no evidence of it. Um, but I learned that there's a gentleman named Dr. Zapp. Um, who been who claimed during these interrogations that they had seven vocoders developed as early as 1941. I knew, Dr. I knew Zapp would be involved. Um, among the interrogated were Fritz Sennheiser and a man named Wolfgang Martini. All they wanted to do was work on electroacoustic instruments, but um, they were sort of coerced into developing work on speech encryption. So after the war, when target, intelli target intelligence committees would raid this castle in Bavaria, the vocoder and a lot of their scrambling equipment was stashed behind this artificial wall and, and buried beneath, and Dr. Zapp had gotten away. Well, it turns out the head of the laboratory had sent, the, had sent the Gestapo after Dr. Zapp and had him arrested and jailed, but then Dr. Zapp dug himself out of the jail and escaped. Um, but Fritz Sennheiser was down in this laboratory working, and Fritz Sennheiser, the Sennheiser vocoder, which is on a lot of you guys, have, or a lot of folks' headphones, would be used by Neil Young, well, it would nearly ruin Neil Young's career. Um, it would be used by Herbie Hancock, uh, Cheech and Chong, um, let's see, Frank Zappa would use it. But um, I just wanted to play an early like Sennheiser sample, and this is their sort of demonstration thing to lure people into buying their product. Sign me up, right? Like, you gotta have one of these things. <laughs> Take it to the studio now. Here, for instance, is the recording of the acoustic background on a football field. Now we're gonna have a talking soccer stadium. Müller vor! Noch ein Tor! And here is the vocoded effect of both. Fritz Sennheiser, Los Angeles vocoder pioneer, folks. Uh, he passed away this last spring. And here's Herbie Hancock using the Sennheiser, and here is Slum Village and Dilla sampling Herbie Hancock using the Sennheiser. that good old filtered banshee bottom, right? Had no idea it was a vocoder.
This is the EMS vocoder, which was developed at the same time. It cost about $13,000. Uh, it was used by the BBC for Doctor Who and Doctor Quartermass and all kinds of mad doctors. Um, my involvement with this giant piece of electronic furniture would be a Ray Bradbury play that the BBC aired in 1977 for a Martian Chronicle story called August, 2000, August 4th, 2026 story about the last automated house on Mars after a nuclear holocaust. The vocoder is more than happy to supply the voices and I want to play a clip which is basically the house losing its mind when it realizes nobody's going to eat the toast, nobody's listening to its bad poetry, and nobody will feed the dog. And it sounds something like this. The splendor falls on castle walls and snowy summits open swarms. Long light hangs with a smoke in the dark. Can't wait to make a sound. That's the garage door opener. So this is aired on the radio in 1977. It's produced by Malcolm Clark of the BBC. Malcolm Clark was hired to cause visibility to burp for the better part of two minutes, and so he's immediately hired for his sound effects. Malcolm Clark was a genius ahead of his time. He worked with Delia, Delia Darbyshaw. And uh, unfortunately, he passed away of a heart attack a year after I interviewed him. He was a really a big contributor to the book and a really generous, amazing person. Oh, good old EMS. Wait till you hear the whole thing. We're going to air it on this website. Finally agreed to air the thing, uh, boingboing.com. I tried to present it because I figured in August, it's like, hey, here's this like 20 minute weird ass post apocalyptic Bradbury vocoder thing. Why wouldn't the New York Times, you know, paper cuts air it? You know, people were like, hey, man, I don't know what that is. Um, but yeah, we're gonna, you'll be able to hear the whole thing on, online. We're gonna, it's going to air in a couple of weeks. And uh, it's pretty, just in time for Halloween. No, it's pretty amazing. You should, I mean, the information on the blog. <laughs> oh yeah, Cylon. Finally, right? <laughs> like, I'm here at this fucking vocoder thing. Where are the Cylons? Um, this is a Cylon lumbering around Forrest J. Ackerman's basement in Griffith Park. Um, photographed by the author. Uh, sorry about the gleam there. Um, but the Cylons use the EMS vocoder and the Sennheiser vocoder, and that's a lot of people's pop cultural touchstone for the device. Um, Forrest J. Ackerman was another person who sadly checked out before the book was finished, but um, he was a bit, played a big role in it well as an inspiration. He helped me run around his madhouse and check out all of his books and stuff. It's a, I mean, for, it's a great, it's, it was an L.A. institution. Um, you could just enter this, this, this house full of monstrabilia and basically uh, attempt to uh, figure out everything in this book. Which uh, James Ty, my former editor at Herb Magazine, brought this. I haven't seen him in years. And uh, there, could, there could be no vocoder book without Dennis Gifford's pictorial history of horror films, folks. This is another LA standard. Guys, I'm really LA in the living shit out of this thing. <laughs> um, I'm just kidding. Uh, 
Oh, whoa, yeah, that's me checking out the H.R. Uh, Giger uh, vocoder talk box in Fari Ackerman's basement. That's a creature from the Black Lagoon with a toupee. You can't quite see what's going on. Uh, the T-shirt is about organized confusion. <laughs> Stress. ELO, yes. This is what it sounds like inside of an ELO song. This whole choir set up to tour with them, and when they heard the vocoder, they put, packed up their coats and left. Way to go, vocoder. And you're like, all right, here we go. <laughs> this is a customized Pac-Cham sleeve found in Fresno, California. Um, Pac-Cham is an early uh, electro song that freaked me out among all of them by the Johnson crew out of Boston. Um, you can't see it, but on the runoff wax, uh, the engineer, Herb Powers, had etched a family of Pac-Men uh, trying to eat each other merrily around the circle, heading towards the serial numbers. But uh, Pac-Jam was basically recorded by Michael Johnson, who had this idea that he wanted to destroy all Pac-Man machines while channeling Sun Ra and <laughs> discovering new kids in the block at the same time. And Pack Jam is nothing but speech compression, and that's what the vocoder did. And that was another one of those moments like, hey, all right, great shit, this thing's never going to end. Um, that's why books take eight years. But, and this is what Pack Jam sounds like. This is my stepbrother's Camaro. Um, I do this every time. This is very important. This may be the most important part of the evening. There is nothing, and I tell you, nothing like hearing Scorpio for the first time in the back seat of this thing while sitting on a homemade machine gun doing a cool 85 down the back road in North Carolina. And this is what it sounded like. Good God. I think we blew up my ducktail. I had this amazing ducktail back then. So I was kind of leaning back and the speakers kind of rolled that shit off the back of my head. But it's raw. I mean, the bass line is from the Blues Brothers. The muse for the song was Rick James. Uh, and there's Scorpio himself to the right, and there's Dynamite in the middle. Dynamite was the Furious Five's hype man. He would come on stage with a fog machine and wearing a, a ghoul mask and kind of doing these imperious gestures while the artificial smoke was doing its thing. And that's Millie Mel, the most fittest old school rapper ever. And that's their friend. He's like, man, who are these guys? Um, this, folks, is uh, Mr. Good Fred Ellis. He is the godfather of the Jerry Curl, and he runs 
and ran the uh, La Rutan Barbershop in South Central. Good Fred was a big inspiration for Egyptian Lover and Uncle Jam's Army and a lot of the early LA electro pioneers and encouraging them to start their own label and providing them with office space. Um, the photo was taken by Brian Cross, who I believe is here. Um, another LA guy. <laughs> um, yeah, so there's Good Fred Ellis. And um, to give you an idea, I want, I want to play a clip from, um, there's an LA producer named Rich Kaysen who passed away. Not the all morbid on y'all. No, not everybody's passed away, I promise. But Rich Kaysen did pass away a couple of years ago, and he was an LA electro legend, like an amazing producer and keyboard player who worked with Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis after they got fired by Prince. So I wanted to play a clip of, um, of a Rich Kaysen production called Radioactivity Rap. Pretty excited. These records made it to North Carolina, so I was absolutely freaking out. Like all the LA shit, all the Miami shit coming down the pipe in like 1984. And Egyptian Lover couldn't be here, but here he is. Um, and surprise, um, there's an amazing moment where during the old school days, uh, in order to uh, promote the good Fred Handsome Dude pomade oil, they'd, they'd throw him out in the crowd at the early Uncle Jam's parties in these tiny little vials while Egyptian Lover was cutting up Zap records. So if you think about something like Dance Floor, that famous Zap mini moog effect, because it's like, and while he's going back and forth nuts on the turntables. I always thought I was, it would sound like this. other keyboard part is a song called uh, I Need a Freak, not to be confused with Dial a Freak. Um, <laughs> any Dial a Freak fans here? Please, come on, man. That, yeah, you should hear Dial a Freak. It's another LA. Ooh, one of those uh, X-rated phone call electro jams. <laughs> and this guy is supposed to be here. I think he's picking up his brother, Reggie Calloway, from Midnight Star at the airport. This is Vincent Calloway. Does anybody remember Freakazoid? Right. This, well, this is the Freakazoid, age 50. This is real. He's entered the. Uh, he's not. Well, sorry. He's honored as an official black belt in the martial arts hall of fame. Right. Look at that. Now, when they performed this at the Ohio State Fair, it caused a riot because they said Freakazoid's robot. Please report the dance floor. <laughs> I was like, all right, and then it's like tore down the fences getting there. Um, but I'm doing a class, uh, doing a class at USC tomorrow with uh, Vincent Calloway. Anybody want to come? Um, do a, a vocoder demo and uh, run it down like that. I mean, I, yeah, I'm sorry. Oh, the, the inscription says, "I know the book's going to be kicking." Sounds pretty, pretty into that. Yeah, what on earth is this, right? Um, and this is Ramel Z. Uh, <laughs> um, 
This is Remel Z wearing this massive suit of armor that he built himself um, out of garbage uh, and detritus and picking up various things off the, tr off the curb in Chinatown before the, trash, before the trash collectors came. It has a built-in vocoder. It has a built-in stereo system that plays Gregorian chants, speed metal, and symphonic music. Um, Bill Laswell, who had worked with Ramelzi in the 1980s, would always bring people up to his, to his apartment, which he called the battle station. And it was appropriate, because the battle station, you definitely felt like you were under siege at all times. Uh, Ramelzi was a huge influence on the book. Um, I first interviewed him in 1993, and we kind of kept this mad rapport since then. And uh, sadly, he passed away this past uh, July. <coughs> July. But, um, one time I asked him if he's going to see the new Transformers movie, and he's like, why do I need to see them? Why do I need to see me? I am me. I am the Transformers. Um, so anyway, Bill Laswell wanted to bring George and Bootsy uh, up to meet this guy, this character named Ramal Z. And uh, George and Bootsy go up to the battle station, and Ramal Z was so excited, he put on his uh, Transformers suit. And um, so they walk in, and there's Ramos, and he accidentally launches a rocket into the kitchen, and it explodes. <laughs> and George and Boosie are kind of looking at him, and they look at Bill, and George only goes, my man. And then it's kind of like, friends till the end. Um, Bill Laswell, an amazing social engineer, right? Ramsey once met William Burroughs in, uh, in Holland and uh, apparently bummed weed off of him. The Ramsey claimed that William Burroughs bummed the weed off of him. And yeah. But um, I wanted to read an excerpt from the Ramsey part. Um, and well, let's get to uh, this photograph of him and Jean Michel Basquiat entering Disneyland in 1984. Um, as you can tell, there is no one near them. <laughs> On some Wally World shit, right? <laughs> Nobody's home. Um, and we have sadly arrived late to the scene. Um, the Jean-Michel's tie appears to be guided by some electromagnetic force. They had just taken this overnight flight with, shared with, um, among others, uh, Edward Van Halen uh, from New York to LA. But uh, Stephen Torton took the photograph and took some amazing photos of Ramel Z and Basquiat on Santa Monica Boulevard as well. But I wanted to read a section from the book from when um, the first time I met Ramel Z at the battle station. This is called People Disappear, Stairs Do Not. When I, when I first spoke with Ramel Z over the phone in 1992, he promised to cook me with Texas Pete hot sauce. Since then, he's called me a virus, accused me of being with the Defense Department, labeled me the worst goddamn critic he ever met in his goddamn life, made jokes about my eyebrows, and offered to throw me from his rooftop. The photo he sent of himself was no less confusing than the good-natured threats. For one, he was nowhere to be found. Yet that's him, somewhere behind three, maybe four sets of fangs, encrypted inside an armored suit called the Gasolier, it's as if Tetsuo's Iron Man had taken up costume jewelry and plastics and blown up a Hasbro factory. The gasolier weighed nearly 180 pounds and spouted flames from the wrist, heels, throat, and most impressively, two doll heads that depended from the waist with an alarming proximity of the gasolier's in-house stereo, which is powered by a 100-watt amp. In terms of data compression, and this is coming from Ramel Z, who said, too much information in the room is not good policy. 
Ramel should be wearing a vocoder on his person at all times. When asked if he had seen a new Transformers movie, he said, I don't need to see it. I am it. Why do I need to see me? I mean, he's right. To get to the battle station, one could either chance the traffic flying out of the Holland Tunnel, but without the help of pedestrian cross mirrors, because Ramel had borrowed them for an album cover. Or you could just take the cage crosswalk over the noise into the firehouse red building that sat next to graveler pipe fitters. The four flights up the loft on Light Street seemed to favor murderous plunge over ascent, discouraging poachers as well as, well as Africa Bambata one time, apparently winded by the third flight when things took a crooked extra-dimensional lurch. Once I reached the top of the stairs, Ramelzi confirmed this. Yes, boss, the stairs do shrink. And then he assured me that they wouldn't disappear. People disappear, stairs do not. I was then led into some mad tea party situation, only the tea was beer, and the hatter wore a do-rag, and the dormouse was Swiss. A team of graffiti writers from Zurich sat hunched around a plank on cinder blocks, while the TV behind them showed a ghoulish version of Tweety Bird chasing Sylvester around the laboratory. The bird weighed at least 400 pounds. The cat was in pieces. The Swiss had flown over to challenge Ramel Z to a drag race with flying letters on zip wires. There would be death metal, gambling, and kitchen rocket science. Sketchbooks and trash talk were in full circulation. There's an argument about who is going to take whose letter, or in some cases already had, and which letters were armed with swiveling harpoons. The air was thick with weed and nonsense. It was barely noon. Later that day, I stood in the rain at the Rocksteady Zulu Nation anniversary up near 98th and Amsterdam in Harlem. A park full of rappers awaited the brand Nubian Reformation, despite the sky cracking up above them. The Cold Crush Brothers came with umbrellas. Brooklyn rapper OC performed Time's Up in a deluge. A crew of Japanese b-boys hydroplaned over tennis courts. Micah Nine from South Central blistered the deep cover instrumental with a lightning-friendly plate in his head. Going soggy, I tried to reason with the morning's events at Ramel Z's place. The ghoul bird, the guys from Zurich, and the letters tortured beyond recognition. I remember at one point Ramel Z glaring across the table and muttering, when you start thinking too hard, the culture dies. Embarrassed, I looked away and found refuge under the plank in the cinder block hollow. There stood the silent witness, an empty bottle of Texas Pete. This gentleman is Africa Bambata. Uh, this photo was taken when he visited the Museum of Natural History in 1984. It's from a documentary called Beat This. If you see the documentary, hopefully uh, you'll see these young kids uh, just kind of checking out, checking out the, uh, the sights and sounds at the planetarium. And then the Funk Overlord shows up on the vocoder. And this is kind of what the book's all about, this idea of this, this, this machine that was developed to improve telecommunications, only to be repurposed by the military to mass communications, restricted to a few, and then made available for all by guys like him. 
And in showing Bambata, the early World War II system, the photos of the turntables, he's, he's flipping through the book and just said, yeah, I knew it all along. And then we started talking about Vincent Price. And anyway, I wanted, in closing, we're going back to Ralph, Ralph, Ralph Miller. Sorry. Going back to Ralph Miller, we're going to close the circuit um, and play a game of telephone. I wanted to read the, uh, the end of the book. Let me find my place. Where did you go? So, and uh, towards maybe four years into the book, I went, I visited my niece's uh, fourth grade class and played a big game of telephone. And I wanted to test out two different vocoder phrases, one from the hip hop side and one from the cryptology side. And so from the hip hop side, I want to try This Stuff is Really Fresh by Fab Five Freddy. Um, or Roger Trilling. If Roger Trilling is in the house, he was supposed to come tonight. But the voice is really Roger Trilling and um, is the most sampled noise in music. Um, and it's just human speech formed from white noise. So the first phrase was, this stuff is really fresh. And I was going to circulate that amongst like 22 kid brains. The second phrase would be, crosstalk can sneak in between the pulse. Ralph Miller told me that one of the last times we met when we were having lunch and the... Uh, and this is still the morning of shock and awe, so he's 96 at the time. And we're having lunch in the retirement community in Concord, Massachusetts. And um, he's been talking about the turntables and uh, kind of blowing my mind all day. And uh, you know, it's about time for me to go. So I was getting up from the table, and he goes, remember, he grabs my wrist. Remember, crosstalk can sneak in between the fault, the pulse. And I backed away like, dude. Sick. Um, so then I went and told Grandmaster DXT about this, this old school hip hop DJ, and he goes, Oh, you know what he's talking about? This stuff is really fresh. Signal leakage. So uh, I wanted to play some unvoiced hiss energy before beginning the telephone circuit. And this is Bell Labs, 1936. This time we have the vocoder set so that the speech is entirely remade out of the hiss type energy. Sister Susie sells seashells down by the seashore. S Sister Susie sells seashells down by the seashore. This stuff is real. Down by the seashore. Beaches, man. Um, anyway, the epilogue is called I Was Like. And the epigraph is, goes something like, you couldn't fool your mother on the foolingest day of your life if you had an electrified fooling machine. Homer Simpson. Today we're going to play telephone and build a scrambler out of 22 kid brains. I number each student and ask them to write what they hear, or what they think they hear, so the words can be traced through the homophonic wash. Attention spans are somewhere between Mars and dinosaurs. The controls are shaky when the objective is gibberish. Number four wears ladybug sandals. Number seven chews on a clipboard. There's a picture of a meteor above the head of number 11 who happens to have a pencil up his nose. Number 13 has a calculator on his watch. Number five is in a colonial hairnet. And number six looks like she just roller skated through the phantom toll booth. Number 22 is new and genuinely not suspicious. My niece, named Bernice, is number one with tangled mermaid hair and a purple giraffe shirt. Berenice's dad once tried to change her brain with a TV remote, and she told him to walk away from his weirdness slowly. Berenice thinks the vocoder in Pac Jam sounds like Gollum, precious Gollum, not the Yiddish man of clay Gollum. 
At a dinner the weekend before, I consulted some friends on how to record the experiment without the class knowing. Suggestions ranged from hiding a mini-disc player inside a banana pudding to wiring myself in the bear suit. If you walk in there wearing a bear suit, said one, they're going to jump on you. She also suggested I should bug a stuffed penguin. Another friend said, oh, it takes them eight hours to write a sentence. When do they realize things happen when they're not looking? And you know little kids can't whisper. When a big day comes, the class insists on being allowed to, quote, call operator once and have the phrase repeated. So I start them off easy with, this stuff is really fresh. It scuttles from ear to ear, a new invention in each smile. Even when kids are thinking, they make noise. The rasp of paper, erasers tapping teeth, tongues walking on rooftops, popping double-time talks, faces cracking up into fingers grazed by stray ink, a purple formula for space rock fizz. Number seven calls the operator. Number 10 apparently thinks his clipboard is a trumpet. The pencil has now completely disappeared into number 11's nose. Number six says, don't sneeze. Number nine calls operator. Eight goes back to nine, forgets stuff, and just says, fresh. Number 15 thinks she heard him. Number 17's antenna is up. Security leak in a thought balloon. Now half the class is mouthing stuff and fresh to one another. The teacher says, shush. The code is broken. Even if you know what it is, just write down what you hear, says 22, sticking to the program. Good old 22. We like 22. I collect the scraps of paper and read the results. This stuff is very fresh. This stuff is very red. This stuff is really sad. In fact, 14 through 21 all think this stuff is really sad. And then it's 22 to the rescue with disnuff and flesh. You have been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.